Tonight we are going to be delving into two areas and that the initiation of the completion of our reception of salvation we started last week and then we're going to be looking into our eternal security. I'm a little, oh, I'm going to be holding back a little bit tonight, let's just put it like that, um, because I know in my preaching schedule on Sunday morning, we're going to be getting back into eternal security multiple times over the next few weeks. And we're actually going to culminate that section, uh, that sentence of uh, 1 Peter, uh, with a doctrinal overview of eternal security. It's going to sound a lot like tonight, but in a preaching format instead of this interactive format. And those formats are different. My daughter informed me today, that my, this week, that my Sunday night studies are completely different than my Sunday morning sermons. She says that, because she does the podcast, and she takes out all the ums, and she says, you have a lot more ums Sunday night. And then, of course, we have dead time, because your interaction doesn't get on the recording. So she has to edit those parts out. And Sunday morning, she says, sounds like a speech. I'm like, imagine. Um, it really sounds like a sermon. So... Obviously, this is going to be a little bit different formatted, but the material is not distinct. And so we're going to be going through some material that uh, is controversial. There's no doubt about that, which is weird, how eternal security became controversial. Uh, and we're going to look at why it went to extremes and who's taking it to those extremes uh, in both directions. But first, let's get into the conclusion of the reception of salvation. Now, we, in number one, we say that God initiates our reception. And certainly we want to talk about God's calling, God's convicting, uh, and those things we have already discussed last week. That God calls and convicts us, the conviction is of the Holy Spirit, so that we can understand our sin, His righteousness, and that there's a judgment that we have to confront. So the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, hopefully we understand. We're going to see that a little bit more when we get into the study of the Holy Spirit, uh, which follows this one. And so we're going to look into that aspect more deeply. The calling of God, I've worked on in the past over and over again, trying to uh, disassociate it from our, a Calvinistic concept that God only calls those whom he intends to save or has enabled to save. And that's really an, an honest statement for Calvinists. Because if they were really be honest, they said that only people God calls can get saved that are able to get saved. Because no man has the ability to receive Christ as their Savior inherent in himself. And so the Holy Spirit has to come and do this regenerative work first so that you can have the ability to get saved. And that is... Uh, not the biblical use of the word calling. Uh, in fact, it's going to go against one that's very carefully preserved in Scripture, and that is to make sure your calling and election, or, or that you can work to make your calling and election sure. That's a very strange concept if everything is the work of God and you have no part in it, including the capacity to believe and the capacity to complete your calling and your election. So the sureness, which we're going to talk about in eternal security soon, um, is about calling election sure, is something that you participate in. You are a participant in making your calling and election sure. And so the idea that this is, 
that we are the passive recipients of election uh, just isn't in God's Word. And we've studied election extensively and its use and terms. We have it here, predestination, election, calling. Those three words are often put together and woven together by Calvinists to make it very clear that if you aren't the elect, God will not call you because everyone he calls, uh, he, he saves, he justifies. And Romans 8, of course, is the big passage they use. They take it way out of context to do that. Uh, and then they ignore Romans 10 where it says that, you know, if you want to believe, you have to hear how you hear without a preacher. And they ignore that passage that is all the human side. And they always want to go to Romans 8, and that God only calls those who he foreknew, and he only, fore, he only uh, uh, re- saves those he called, or he saves all those that he called. And so that's just not consistent with God's word, uh, where God calls all men everywhere to repentance. So the calling of God is an open invitation to all men and thus, we believe that all men everywhere are called by God. When we talk about being the called, for example, in Jude and, and other places where it says you are the called according to, uh, well, that refers to the fact that you've responded to the call. And so all are called, but those that respond are called the called in Scripture. They are referred to in that by that term as the called. It does not mean that the others were not invited or were incapable of accepting Christ. It is simply they did not respond to the call. Uh, But it is very evident that God must call us to salvation because on our own, we will not go that direction. We just don't. We are at enmity with God. He is our enemy. We are his, his foes, and we hate him, and we hate righteousness because we have to acknowledge that we don't measure up to that. And so God invites us. And that invitation we've seen comes from God. He makes sure it happens to all uh, at some level. Now, does that mean that there weren't third world or, or remote places where there were native peoples that never heard the name of Jesus and never heard of Moses and, and never had the scriptures for generations? No, it doesn't mean that. In fact, Romans 1 addresses that, that God calls us even through creation. That just by looking at the, at the elements of creation, we can know the, the attributes of God just by looking at creation. As we talked about this morning a little bit, all cultures recognize there is deity. No matter how remote they are, no matter how backwards they are, uh, even the quote-unquote Stone Age tribes, that was a term they used when I was young, I don't hear hear that used anymore at all. I don't know there are any Stone Age tribes left on the earth. Stone Age tribes, even they have a concept of deity, that there is a God, because it's inherent in the world around us and within us as well, being in the image of God. And so they all are called, and we see consistently that as, as groups of people, even very remote people that you might say have, why have there's no way they're going to have contact with the gospel. Uh, when they begin looking for the true living God, God makes an avenue for them to hear the gospel. And we see that over and over again by missionaries talking about that, that they showed up and they were, had a very receptive audience, and they didn't understand why until much later. And they said, well, we had been praying for God to send us someone to reveal himself to us, and then you showed up. <laughs> 
and told us about the one true and living God. And so that has, that has been a testimony. And we see it similarly even among closed countries that are trying to snuff out the gospel that are not third world at all, that are some of the wealthiest countries on earth, like Saudi Arabia, where Muslims who uh, just want to know who God really is and God uh, intervenes. And sometimes that's through a dream. Uh, interesting testimonies over and over again. I, I heard Jesus in a dream, saw Jesus in a dream, and he told me, go talk to so-and-so, they'll tell you the truth. And sure enough, there was a Christian around where they could hear the truth or get access to a Bible, and they received that. And so God calls all men everywhere that calling and election, that, that, that uh, choosing us for, not choosing an individual, but rather choosing what to give those who respond to the call is, is wrapped up almost entirely in the concept of election. That he's going to choose what he's going to give you. And so make sure that you have your calling, the work of God, and election, sure, by something you do. We're going to look at that verse. And so that's God's initiation of our reception. He has to do that. He has to convict us. He has to do that. And again, predestination is not predetermination. And uh, we've talked about that in the past as well. We talked about foreknowledge last week a little bit. Also, that that is the end. What is the end result? And that is uh, God planning for what everyone who receives his salvation gets. What is their destiny? Predestination. He has planned their destiny ahead of time that you will be in heaven forever with him if you accept his call. All right, let's go to number two on that list of, our, of how we get saved. So while God initiates it, we have to complete that. Uh, that's implied in the word reception. He can invite us. He can offer the gift to us. But we have to accept the gift. And we talked about repentance and faith and belief, these terms. And so where does repentance come from? All right, it's, a, it's generated by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but you can be convicted of the Holy Spirit and choose not to repent, correct? You can resist him. The Holy Spirit is resistible, and you have to ask me how Calvinists can believe that it is possible to resist the Holy Spirit. We are told, do not resist the Holy Spirit. How is that possible if he is irresistible? That's the I and tulip, the irresistible grace that, uh, well, he can't in Calvinism. But in the Bible, he can. He can be resisted. So what is repentance? It says the goodness of God, in Romans, leads us to repentance. Does it cause us to repent? No, God leads us to it. <clears throat> like the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can lead a sinner to repentance, but you can't make him repent. God does that. He'll lead you right to repentance. By his goodness, he does that. The Spirit's convicting you is a good thing. Guilt is a wonderful thing if you're guilty. Let me say that again. A feeling of guilt is a wonderful thing when you are guilty. In fact, the lack of a feeling of guilt is a judgment of God because you have resisted his conviction over and over and over again, also in Romans 1. That you have, you have just uh, resisted the point that you just have a hardened conscience now that doesn't feel guilty when you do atrocious things. But guilt 
is a good feeling when you're guilty. When you're innocent and feeling guilty, well, that's Satan's work, and that's why Christians uh, sometimes get trapped in that. And we have these psychobabbling preachers that talk about, oh, you shouldn't ever feel guilty about anything you do. Well, you should feel guilty when you do wrong. <laughs> that is a good feeling. It is the goodness of God leading you to repentance. Without guilt, you would never come to repentance. Okay? Kind of like pain. Is pain a good thing? It's a great blessing. Without the sensation of pain, you wouldn't know you were in trouble. And you would just, if you were touching a hot iron and didn't feel pain, you could melt your hand. So you do real damage instead of just superficial damage. So pain is a blessing. Do I like pain? No. Do I try to avoid pain? Yes. Same thing with guilt. Do I like guilt? No. Should I avoid guilt? Yes. How do I avoid guilt? By not doing bad things. Then I don't have to feel guilty. If I tell the truth, I don't ever feel guilty about lying, right? If I uh, go on. So, uh, you know, a guilt-free life is great only if it's derived from righteous living. But if you have guilt-free and you're doing bad things, something's wrong in that. And so uh, repentance is responding properly to guilt and turning uh, from being opposing to God to embracing God. And that turning, and that's all repentance means, to change of mind. You change your mind about it. That instead of being against, I am for now, change of mind is becoming a rarer and rarer event. I'm going to share that with you. I just, I don't know why. I don't know why in our culture. I think because of humanism that we worship ourselves and because we have a, a value system that is based upon personal uh, measure instead of a measure by truth. Uh, but we have, every, when, we, when we hear people say, well, that's truth for you and this is truth for me, and I just go, blah, 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 blah. you know, you don't know the word, what the word truth means anymore. And so uh, I notice it online. How many times online in all of your chatting and all of your co online conversations do people genuinely have a change of mind? Almost, I, I don't know, I can't remember the last time I had someone change their mind. You know, I say my position, they say their position. I point out the flaws of their position and, and the, the rightness of this position. I use God's word, and, and pretty soon uh, uh, the conversation is over. Usually by saying, well, that's truth for you, not for me. That's your interpretation of it, not my interpretation of it, uh, which is the Christian version of truth for you and truth for me. That's the baptized version of it. Is that's your interpretation. It's not my interpretation. It's like, well, it's what God's word says. I don't know how I have to interpret that. Uh, I just told you what it said. All I did was quote the verse. And you said, that's my interpretation. And it's like, so I see very little changing of mind. In fact, there's little memes and stuff out there of, you know, the whole idea that there is no changing of mind. Well, changing of mind is the word repentance. To change one's mind. That I was this and now I'm that. Uh, there's a group of videos that I've kind of been addicted to for about a year. I, I, I've watched them on a regular basis. And it's, um, it's political. 
uh, and it's kind of interesting, and, and I, I watch those because it actually is people talking about the process of how they change their mind. And, and it's fascinating to hear that. And overwhelmingly, what changed their mind was investigating the facts and the truth. Here's what I've heard, here's where I've always been, and, but I wanted to find out for myself, and so I investigated it. I wanted to get more information, and that information changed my, my mind. We often think of repentance as being a very emotional thing, and I'm not saying it's unemotional, but it is a change of mind. It is not just sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Absolutely. I completely agree. Right? But what brings godly sorrow is, is a mind element. It's not a feelings. It's not how you feel about your sin, it's what you know about your sin. My sin is an affront to God. My sin is evil. My sin is my own, and I can't undo it. And that is a mental investigation of the facts. And so conviction isn't just a feeling. It is a, a, it is a mind uh, engagement. And so we ought to be reasoning with people about sin. We ought to be using the law. God brought the law. Uh, should you feel some guilt? Should you feel sorrow? Yes. But that's not the basis of repentance. That's the, that's the demonstration of it. But the real basis is an understanding of righteousness and sin and what they are. And so that is repentance. And I just want to get that through because I think we think repentance has to be uh, this weeping and, and, and it is a change of mind. That's what it really means in the Greek. And that means you're going to engage people's mind and not just make them feel bad about their sin. That's really, uh, even conviction isn't just feeling bad, it's knowing sin is bad. It's thinking this, change of thought. Faith and belief, what are faith and belief? Help me out. You guys know what these are? Very good, we start right off with biblical definition. Faith is the substance, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the substance of things... Hope for the evidence of things unseen. So what is faith? What's your interpretation of that verse? <laughs> All right. All right. We, we focus in on the unseen and the hope for, but what are the two things that faith is? Take out the prepositional description. Faith is substance and evidence. All right, when you show faith, you are showing that you have sureness or confidence. You are showing the evidence. You're showing the substance. It is tangible. I can see faith. If I can't see your faith, your faith isn't real. It's a lie. You're deceiving yourself. Who said that? James. Faith without works is dead. It's empty. It's void. It's, it's worthless. Show me your faith. Faith is evidence. And when you go through Hebrews 11, what happens by faith? By faith they believed? No, what does it say? By faith they... By faith they what? That whole list of the faith chapter. All these great heroes of the faith. What, did, what was... By faith they did something. An action verb. By faith they did this. By faith they did... They, they left his, his land and went to a land they'd never seen and... and 
didn't know it really exists. By faith, they went out and did this. By faith, they went and walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. By faith, they did these things. Faith is always actuary. It is in, in motion. It is evidence. It is, it is tangible. You can see it, touch it, uh, hear it. You can, it. It's in practice. When we get this idea that faith is inside of us, and, and we associate belief systems with uh, mental agreement with. Uh, and it's really much more than that. Faith is putting it in, into action, into our lives. So when I have faith in you, I'm going to actually do that. So when I'm sitting there looking at a child on a high thing, and I had one of your kids, I don't remember which kid it was, up on a thing, I was like, jump, I'll catch you. Do you believe I'll catch you? Yes, I believe you catch you, then jump. Uh-uh. Okay, did they have belief? Yes, but they didn't have faith. So that, because they didn't jump. If they had jumped, you'd say, he really believed, trusted, he truly trusted. Uh, and remember, John has those levels of belief. We study in the Gospel of John, you believe, but you don't really believe, and then you don't really, really believe, which is faith. Put it into practice. And so, who has the faith? The faith is a person who has evidence and Substance. Substance is something you can touch, taste, feel, see. That's faith. Don't tell me you have faith and don't show anything. If I don't see any difference in your life, you can't claim to be a person of faith. You can, but you're lying. You're deceiving yourself. Show it. Show your faith. I'll show you my faith. You show me what I can see by how you live your life, who and what you trust in. Because you all have faith in something. So I'm watching people, and they have a lot of faith in politicians. They have a lot of faith in doctors. They have a lot of faith in the science. They have a lot of faith in lawyers. Because people's lives are fashioned, they live as if all those people never lie and are never wrong. Don't they? That's where their faith is, because that's where their living is. And when I see them walking around and they're driving their car by themselves and they're wearing a mask, I know who they believe. I know who they're trusting. And they're trusting that group of people. Wrong, right? Or doesn't matter. That's who they trust in. That's where their faith lies. Your faith is your, is your life. And so increase our faith means help us to live in accordance to what we, you have already taught us is truth. Help us to live by that truth. And living by truth is not an easy endeavor. It is a very difficult life. And it always has been. And it's always been the minority, never the majority. A life of faith is not uh, acceptable to the world, of faith in God. You can live in faith in yourself. You can live by faith in uh, science, medicine. You can live by faith in all these other things. But don't you dare live by faith in God and his word. That's unacceptable. You can even live by faith in Allah and and, in Vishnu, and you can live in faith to Buddha. Um, That's acceptable somewhat, uh, but don't you live in faith to God? Not in this country, to the truth of God's word. Okay? And that's already distinguished us from belief. And so we are called to have faith, to have belief, believe, but then show true faith, and that is evidence. Show the evidence. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. You believe there's God, prove it. 
You believe that you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? Prove it. Your faith proves it. People can look at you and say, you're the real deal. You've proven it to me. That's faith. Any questions on how we receive salvation? All right, you ready to delve into 20 minutes of eternal security? Knowing that you're going to have several weeks of touching on it and finally one week of focusing in on it. I'm going to read what's written here. It's old and, uh, <laughs> and I've modified it probably over the course of time. A good understanding of the doctrine of eternal security provides the believer in Christ with assurance and confidence in his, her salvation. This doctrine has been abused and misconceived by some and ignored by others. It is based on the teaching of Scripture which affirms certain works of God which are impossible to reverse because he promised they wouldn't. The immutable, that is, uh, immutable means unchangeable. They cannot be changed. That once God does this, they can't be changed. You, once you are put into the body of Christ, once you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, once you are kept by his hand, saved by Christ's propitiatory work, not our own, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Those are all past tense. And uh, that's probably one passage that I've modified that from when, I, when this was put out. Interceded for by Christ, adopted. You can't undo an adoption in Hebrew law. Uh, said to have eternal life, said to have eternal salvation, said to have eternal redemption. So there's an eternality to our faith. And we see all this. So this is the foundation of a Calvinistic model of eternal security, which is different than the model that I believe the Bible teaches. Eternal security basically, said, in a Calvinistic model, says, since God had to do all the work and you did nothing, you were dead, 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 and God had to make you alive first, then give you the faith, then... Uh, basically coerce you, cause you to exercise that faith in him alone. Uh, and all of this, that since he does all of that unilaterally, you're not respond. you don't have to be responsive at all. God makes you respond. You, he is grabbing your hands and pulling you and making your hand do what you don't want it to do. Since God does everything, therefore, if you are saved, you, you can't undo what God has done. And that's the Calvinistic model of eternal security. And this list is a foundation. Is this list true? Yes. The question is, when did these things happen to you? Before or after you were saved? Adoption of sons. Was that happen before or after you were saved? It was after you responded. All right? And so we can go through this list and talk about when were you placed in the body of Christ? Before, during, or after your salvation? Afterwards, you're placed in the body of Christ. All those who believed were baptized and were added to their number daily, such as who were being saved, Acts says. And so, seal. When are you sealed by the Holy Spirit? Before or after you're saved? After you've responded, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so, but they have taken all of those initial works that we studied under reception and made God do everything, and man doesn't have to respond. In fact, man can't respond because you are uh, incapable of it. And therefore, if, God, if you're saved, you can't unsave yourself. What's also interesting is you don't know if you're saved or not, really. You're eternally secure if you are one of the elect. Whether you've had a conversion experience or not doesn't matter. You're elect. 
you eventually will, or uh, you never could if you're the non-elect. And so it's really hard as a Calvinist to really know if you're going to heaven or not, not because you don't believe in eternal security, because you don't know whether God elected you or not. Because most of their concept of election is based on personal experience, but personal experience can be tricky, can't it? It can fool you. So are these things real? Yes, but they are your possession after you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Then they are your possession. So I have this big but there in the middle. Uh, but let us not indiscriminately hand out assurance of salvation. The doctrine of eternal security must be presented in a balanced manner. So what's the balanced manner that we're going to use? Uh, the question isn't, are you eternally secure? The question is, when are you eternally secure? And when do you know you are eternally secure? And those are two different questions. Correct? Do you understand the difference between that? When are you eternally secure is God's decision. When do you know you're eternally secure is your experience. And those two events do not always line up chronologically. <laughs> you might say, well, they should, but they don't. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And so it takes some time. God knows it. God knows your heart. But even you could question your heart. Because you can deceive yourself. And many, many, many religious people have done that. So we have two things. I have here, God knows the heart. He can assure yourself your security at the cross experience. He knows what's in your heart. Remember in John, one thing that John said about Jesus is, no one had to tell him the thoughts of man because he knew what they were thinking already. So no one had to tell him what they were thinking because he knew. And so if you were questioning it, he knew. He knew there, where there was doubt. He knew where they were questioning. He knew where there were challenges. God knows your heart. He can give you a statement of eternal security immediately upon your, your engagement with the cross, your, your commitment to him. When did he do that on earth? There's one particular occasion that he did this. The Samaritan woman, I don't know that he gave her that assurance of her salvation at that event. Thief on the cross. This day you will be with me in paradise. That's a statement of assurance. Jesus could issue those. I'm trying to think about the woman at the well now. You got me, you got me wondering. I have to wonder about that for the next... So. Yeah, and... and yeah. Yeah, so, but certainly the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus can say that because he knows the heart. He can issue a statement of eternal security. He can say something to Peter and say, well, this is, you're going to serve me. This is how you're going to die. He can issue that because he knows Peter's heart. And so he can tell Peter, you know, you're going to die for my name's sake. Well, that happened many, 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 many years later in Peter's life. But Peter had that assurance, really, from Jesus' mouth, that I'm going to serve you all my days until I die. That's kind of cool. Um, God gives his, these statements occasionally, but God can do that because he knows the heart, and he knows immediately when that's real. And remember, there are times that Jesus says, I'm not going to play, you say you believe in me, but I'm not going to put myself in your hands. 
because you don't really believe in me. He also knows those that are playing a game or not completely convinced or have belief but not faith. He knows the difference. And so he can issue you an eternal security statement much earlier than you can issue yourself an eternal security statement, and much, certainly much earlier than I can issue it. So man cannot see the heart. He can only be sure when tested. So then God brings testing into your life. And testing is a very important part of the, my model of eternal security. A faith untested is a faith unsure. A faith untested is a faith unsure. One of the best illustrations of this is in the parable of the sower and the soils, right? Sower goes out, sows seed, it falls on different kinds of soils, and some of them we have no problem with. The birds of the air come and get that on the wayside, and we know that those people who hear the word gospel don't respond at all, and it's gone. Uh, some in gravelly, uh, but there's a couple of these, that are, and then the, ones, the, the, the fourth one that grows up and produces a multiplied crop, well, those are for real Christians. But let's talk about the two in between. The ones that are in rocky soil that spring up and then something happens and they die off. What is it that happens? The sun comes out. The heat of the day comes. And that heat is trials and testing that, that there's a, a cost of that. And they don't have any root. And that root, I would contend, is true faith. They have no root in themselves. They have no root in this gravelly soil. And as soon as their faith is tested, as soon as their belief system is tested, it dies. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like someone who is just coasting along uh, and is going to get to heaven but barely? I mean, the plant dies. That sounds like someone who does not have eternal security. But they looked like a plant at the beginning. They started out, they germinated, they, they sprang up, they had leaves, they had all the evidence, they never got to fruitfulness, because as soon as they were tested, they died. There's another one that sprang up, grew into a plant, but became unfruitful because of what? It was choked out by weeds. But they survived, but they were unfruitful. And that's a group that seems to persist in salvation, but are going to be very disappointed when they get to heaven and they're going to be the ones that are weeping of, I don't really deserve to be here because I was unfruitful for the kingdom of God. Um, but some would even contend that those people aren't genuinely saved. So, eternal security has, I believe, should not be granted or talked about until your faith is genuinely tested, which makes a lot of American faith tenuous, doesn't it? It's in jeopardy. How many Americans have had their faith really tested how many I grew up and I, I very little testing really uh, and yet we have had a very subtle testing and we have largely failed that and the subtle testing is enticement to be with and like the world just compromise a little bit here a little bit there a little bit here a little compromise here oh come on does your dress really matter? Does your hairstyle really matter? Does that really matter? Does this music matter? Does that show you watch matter? Does this matter? 
and it goes right down through the list and pretty soon we've compromised everything and how can you say that you passed the test? You failed it miserably because you've compromised everything righteous for acceptance and enjoyment of the world. So no, I'm not going to give you eternal security. The one place that this really comes out, well, there's really two places in the ministry. Uh, one is at funerals. When I'm asked to do funerals and people say, well, they prayed the sinner's prayer and they got baptized at such and such a date. And I'm like, I saw, I can't sit there and say he's in heaven. I'm, I refuse to do it. I refuse in those instances to say they're in heaven. Does that mean they're not in heaven? No, it means I have no basis of that. God may, but I don't. I don't have any works of faith to make that determination and to give comfort based upon that. When I had to go do a funeral uh, for someone who committed suicide, I, I have a challenge. And that challenge is, do I give comfort to the family? Oh, he's in heaven, no matter, or do I challenge them? Is that how you want to end your life? putting nothing but question marks over all of what's important to you. Is suicide unforgivable sin? No. It's not listed in God's word as that. But boy, it sure puts a real question mark over your uh, commitment to Christ that you claim when a Christian commits suicide or even attempts it. And so, in the other times when people come to me and say, I'm not sure I'm saved, uh, and then I, I really enjoy those opportunities because now I can really just blister them with questions about their faith walk with God. Where does this, what brings this forward? Is it a sermon or is it your life that brings this out? And we talk about, so there should be a testing of our faith. What happens when some fall away? Uh, they reject their faith. And Hebrews tells us that if you turn away it is impossible to come to repentance again. You are hardened. That's what Hebrews warns us. That if you turn away from so great a salvation, if you've come so far and tasted so much, and then reject it, that it is impossible for you to come to repentance again. That's how serious this issue is. What I find from most people is they don't, fully reject God, they usually just wander off from him into sin. Uh, but when I find people that just turn just from, I was raised in church, I have nothing to do with them. Well, I try to find, well, did you, yes, I got, I was quote, unquote, saved, I was baptized, and they hate God, and they hate God's people, they hate the church, they hate the Bible, they hate everything, then I, I know what, where they're at. You know, I was a preacher's kid, and I, I it's all hypocrisy, it's all lies. And I went through all that, and I, and I just look at him and say, well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this person uh, because they've rejected him. Hebrews says that once they've tasted the heavenly gift and then spit it out, it is impossible for them to come to repentance again. Yes, this is the, this is the sin of... of uh, against the Holy Spirit. And remember, the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts us of sin. So if you want to uh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to just count it nothing what he has done for you in, in bringing you so close to salvation that you actually sprouted up. And so uh, that's how serious this issue is. 
and be careful. And, and I've had people sit in my office and say, I reject Christianity, I reject that Jesus is my and I reject it. And I just look at them and I, and, and it's, it's time to weep. And I'll just say, I, I'll, I, I, I'm sorry. You know the truth. You've rejected the truth. You have rejected God. And um, you're not going to have a relationship with me, with God's people, with our church. Uh, I'm done. And I'm not even going to try to, don't you want to change my mind? I says, no. No, because you have blasphemed God. You have rejected him, having already claimed to know him and have been baptized in his name. And now you're here rejecting him. And yes, there are seasons and individuals in God's word that says, I've turned you over. to." They're irredeemable. They cannot be saved. And false teachers are that way. And I would contend that uh, false teachers uh, like these are, are usually have a religious background. They've had the opportunity, and they've rejected it completely with all their heart. And it's sad. However, if they pass that testing period, and they have endured, and they've demonstrated their faith in their actions, and they are standing fast in their faith, uh, then we need to turn to those special passages that talk about our eternal security that we see in 1 Peter 1 that we're studying, that we're going to be kept by his power, that we have an eternal inheritance, that we have all these things, that, that we have a confidence, a living hope, all these terms we're going to see there and in many other places of Scripture come to bear now. Now I can, I can embrace them completely and say, these are mine. And I have no doubt in my life of whose I am and where I'm going ever. And any doubt that is formulated is Satan's work and I reject it because I am God's and he is mine. And that is the end result of testing of faith. And that's why we should count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials, when we are tested. Because God is purifying your faith, and by purification we're saying making it genuine. Sincere is the word. What does sincere mean? What is the word we're at? Sin as a prefix means what? Without. Sin in Latin means without. Seer is wax, without wax. That's what sincere means, without wax. Because what they would do is they would put wax on things to cover up flaws. So you'd have a broken vessel, but you'd put wax on it. It would hold water, but it's still really a cracked vessel, and it's not the real article. It's not a genuine, it's not a good one. It's, it's waxed over. It's what they do to your apples to make them shiny. They put wax on them, and yes, wax is edible, so it's okay. Yeah, survive. Don't try to scrape them off, but if you peel them, that's, you're just peeling off mostly wax and a little bit of that. And so, without wax, with, without trying to cover over all the flaws of my life with myself and be disingenuous, I'm the real article. If you go through testing, then you can make that claim. And now, uh, we can start using those special verses. Here's what I see happening. I grew up in a very evangelistic environment uh, in most of the church traditions that I was involved in, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, but I also saw the, 
backwash problem of that. Where we have lots of evangelists, we're going door to door, we're trying to get people to pray the sinner's prayer, we share with them the gospel message, we use evangelism explosion, or we use some other mechanism to uh, a methodology to go through the gospel message, which can be done very quickly. I don't denounce that at all. The gospel is a very simple and direct message. And then we press them, we push, we, we, we uh, call for them to make a commitment, a decision. And we want to make a decision right there on the spot. And uh, we have preachers historically that have done this. And, and, uh, but if you go back even farther in history, they would never have done that. If you look at the old preachers, and some of them were Calvinistic as reason why, they would not give altar calls. That really started with Charles Finney, uh, historically, and his statement when he was condemned for that, well, I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. Well, that, what's that playing to? You're playing to the emotions, the feelings part of it. And that has been, been so then we have people pray a sinner's prayer. And as soon as they pray the sinner's prayer, what passage do we take them to? 1 John. Chapter 5. It's in the books. It's in the tracks. And that's why a lot of tracks, I just kind of scratched that part out. <laughs> I said, don't take them to 1 John 5. Uh, one minute after they pray the sinner's prayer. How dare you? 1 John chapter 5 is not the beginning of the book of 1 John. It's the end. And they go to 1 John chapter 5. Oh, verse 13. I'm reading verse 12 over and over and over again. It doesn't change it. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So right after the sinner's prayer, in the track, in the program, in the uh, evangelism models that are out there, the first verse you teach them is 1 John 5, 13, after they pray the sinner's prayer. What a horrible thing to do to somebody. Because you prayed this prayer... You have this promise. You know that you have eternal life. No, you don't. No, you do not. You don't know that you have eternal life until you have studied 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. You are ignoring the first two words of this verse. These things. These things that I've already written to you or how you know you have eternal life. And I, I dare you to find anywhere in those things the sinner's prayer. I, in fact, would encourage you to even find in there the conversion experience itself, where you were first introduced to the gospel and first made a confession of faith. No, it's about loving God, loving God's people, confessing sin as you sin, uh, and being obedient and joyfully obedient. These things I write that, you're, that you may know that you have eternal life. It is shameful that we give this out to people who have just made a profession of faith with no evidence of faith. Remember, faith technically is evidence. That's redundant. With no evidence, we give them this promise. And then we wonder why they never show up at church. Why should they? They prayed the prayer. You took them to this verse. They know they have eternal life. They can live however they like. And... No difference. I, I'm going to heaven because I prayed that prayer. And this guy told me, because you made this confession, you're going to heaven. You have eternal life. I know it. And I refuse to use this verse in that context because that's not the context of which it was written. 
is a horrible use. And this is the backwash of the evangelism movement. This is why there are so many who make a profession of faith and get in, and they're all excited, and then after a year, sometimes, sometimes just months, sometimes just days, but after a little while, then you never see them. And then they go back into sin. And basically, I call it inoculation evangelism. Right? Because you've inoculated them. Because now if someone comes in with the gospel, what are they going to say to that person? Oh, I did that. I tried that. It didn't work. Or I got that covered. I did that. And maybe even they got baptized as well. Because uh, baptism is really big in the church traditions that I'm from, which is Baptist. Okay, but there are lots of different kinds of Baptists, and hopefully you know that by now. Uh, and so in the churches I came out of, they're heavily evangelistic, and get them in those baptismal waters as fast as you can. And then, but even before the baptismal waters, you give them this verse, and you let them know they're going to heaven, and nothing changes anyone's mind. Write their name on the wall in ink because they have eternal security because they prayed the sinner's prayer and you heard them. Never mind how they live the balance of their life. And I went to a funeral of a young man that died here, and I went to a church of that tradition. I heard the exact same things, and it crushed my heart to hear these people defend a young man's life that was destroyed by a sin of rebellion that had zero evidence of faith, but he is definitely in heaven because he prayed the sermon's prayer, he's baptized in our church, and whatever you think about this young man, whatever you know about his life, this is the only thing that mattered. Wrong. This is a lie. And it, the result of that lie of e false eternal security is people go out there and they are inoculated against the true gospel of coming to genuine faith. And so we need to be more careful, more cautious of this of who are true believers. And again, we study this a lot in John because that was the whole focus of the Gospel of John is are you of faith or do you believe or do you really believe or do you really, really believe the levels of faith. And testing, I see, and in Hebrews 10, uh, the test, and, and in James and 1 Peter, uh, we have all these places we could go to, uh, lots of places that tell us that uh, testing shows that you are if you endure testing as a son, you can have confidence of your inheritance. That's when you have confidence of your inheritance, because you won't deny your father. What's crazy is that, you know, my kids, I don't think, deny me as their father very often. Sometimes I think they would like to, because sometimes I embarrass them. Uh, like all good fathers do, they embarrass their children. All good parents will embarrass their children in public. That's your job sometimes. And, and, uh, but to deny that you're, they're your father. Well, we, in our Heavenly Father, there's nothing embarrassing about him. Zero. How can you deny him? If you are really his child, how can you deny him? And this I keep pressing, is that when you conform yourself to this world instead of being transformed by the Holy Spirit, you are showing that God isn't your father. You're denying him. The evidence that he is your father is your faith working, active. Then, when I see that, I will come in. I'll be glad to do your funeral and say, this person is a child of God there in heaven, and we are here to have a great party 
for their homegoing celebration. Very different than someone that I like, I can't tell. Or maybe everything I see tells different than what it says on the role of such and such church baptismal records. Because that's not enough. It's just not enough. Where is your faith evidence? Redundant statement, because you need to know it. Where is the proof? Where is the substance of your belief? And when I see that, then I can do it. Now, there's three books of the Bible I want to refer to really quickly, because you'll always, one of these three books, one group or another will pick up on. All right? There is Romans, there is John, and there is First, first John, and there is James. Okay? The three seem to have conflicting views of eternal security, but they are not. Okay? Romans tells you how God knows you are saved forever. All right? When we go through it, God declares us not guilty. God declares us sanctified. God, you know, God sanctifies, God glorifies us. All those phrases. Romans is all about God's perspective, how God knows. Romans 8, Romans 5, how judicially the judge knows that you're his child. That's the view of Romans. The view of 1 John is how can you know you're saved? Romans, how does God know I'm saved? 1 John, how do you know you're saved? Right? I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know you're saved? So this is a a self-examining book. 1 John invites you to examine your own life. Examine yourself. Read it. Do I love God? Do I love his commandments? Do I do them joyfully? Do I love the brethren? Do I love the truth? Um, do I confess my sin? Do I admit? Uh, so how do you know you're saved? Is First John. And it's different. It sounds different. And it is different because it's a different perspective. James is how, do, how does someone else know that I'm saved? All right. So how does God know I'm saved? How do I know I'm saved? How do you know I'm saved? And that's a very different thing. So now in James, how do other people know you're saved? And so he says, faith without works is dead. Well, Paul said that faith plus nothing, sola fide, in the Latin, you know, the great reformation, faith alone. Well, people who bank on faith alone and then come to James, and I had the word, the Awana missionary came to me and says, I, I, I cannot make these work. You know, because here it's faith only, and over here it's faith plus works. And because you have two different perspectives. James isn't talking about how does God determine if you're saved, which is faith. All you need is belief. But what is faith? Faith is evidence. God, what evidence does God need? He needs almost none because he knows your heart. How much evidence do you need? First John tells you what the evidence you need for your salvation. How much evidence do I need to know you're saved? It's much more. Even more evidence. And so James says, there's no way you can say you have faith and have no works. It's dead faith from my view. How do I judge, how I determine your, whether you're saved, whether I should treat you as a believer or unbeliever, is by your life, by your works. Exclusively. Not by your confession, but by your faith evidence. Okay, so that's the overview. We'll v- revisit this time and again 
in the next few weeks on Sunday morning. Uh, any questions on that? I've gone late, but it's a lot to handle. Yes? Correct. James is, is very, uh, I'm saying this out loud because otherwise no one will know what you said uh, on the podcast. James is, is pointing out things that unbelievers will look at to see if you're saved. They will always look for those things. How do you treat your fellow man? How do you, how do you control your tongue? How do you treat the poor versus the rich? How do you treat orphans? Those kind, you know, James talks about showing your belief system to not only Christian, other Christians that I know you're saved, but so that the world can say, hey, you got the real deal. There's something weird about you. There's different. You're the genuine article. And they can tell a difference because that level is for all men, not just other believers. Good. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and opportunity to consider and study it. And we thank you for these very important terms and what they mean. And Lord, we pray that you might keep us balanced in our understanding and in our use of your word. We might be careful to uh, know the context of, of your promises and the requirements of them before we just uh, randomly, seemingly just give them out with such a, a error that leads men into sin and keeps them from your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that we might, uh, though not lose the fervor of the needing to evangelize the world, to share Christ with those that we encounter, but with the full gospel message. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.